Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Morning. All right. Um, yeah, all right. I'm going to stand. The further I stand back, hopefully the better the, the ring will be. Um, well, you guys have spent the better part of a year going through Genesis, and now uh, we've just found out how God brought Israel to Egypt, if you've been with us. And so we've been reading the story of the forefathers of Israel, their history, and really it's our spiritual forefathers, and so it's our history. And so we read from Psalm 105 today because that's a song recounting what happened. Um, and, uh, oh, I did want to say something, which just occurred to me as I was praying, is that what you guys are doing here is you're building something. And building is always slow. If you've ever, like, I don't expect that anyone's, like, built a house. Maybe some of you have. There's always the, I know, some people, none. I know. I know who you are. Um, there's always the moment that suddenly it looks like a house, and you just kind of, like, it's, but it's all been going there. And if you've done it before, you know. And I just feel like whenever you're doing church, um, it's this sense of building in which there are milestones and moments, but it's like uh, the, the, the process. Those who have been a part of the process know that it's, it's worthy uh, and that there are milestones on the way. And I just, I, I just want to encourage you guys, like we're, we're building something here and it's awesome. So this is a story of building, Genesis is. And so we read Psalm 105 to remember the story. So I'm going to take you through some of it really quick. Abram. He's called by the voice of a new God in the middle, middle of tragedy and childlessness. There's a, this new God says he'll make Abram great and give him more children than the stars can count, even though kind of the circumstances don't seem to look that way. And so he's far from perfect, but in the midst of how sinful he is and how afraid he is of others, the one thing that Abram does do that's credited to him in Scripture is that he believes God. God says something, he believes it. And he believes in God's promises. And so Abram becomes Abraham and his wife Sarai becomes Sarah. So they're given new names and they're given a new family. And a child, Isaac, is born to them when Sarah is 90 years old, right? And then Isaac grows up and marries Rebecca, whom God finds for him. And he has two twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And then this family is broken. It's messed up. They show favorites. Stuff isn't right. They don't get along. And we see that Jacob, the younger brother, he's forced to run away from home because he tricks his father, who's become blind, and now he's also tricked his brother, who now wants to kill him. And then after years in exile, being far away, he also has his own family, but also they are not free from favoritism, from deception, from broken relationships. But Jacob has 12 Sons, So now you're starting to feel like, oh yeah, this is where we are. And for weeks now, we've been looking at these brothers, right? Ten brothers who especially hate Joseph, who's the oldest, uh, he's the oldest of Rachel, who is Jacob's favored wife. And she died giving childbirth to the second son, Benjamin. So this is one of the youngest Joseph that we've been following. And in the middle of this, all of this, you have to remember that the promise to Abraham is still present. 
right? God extends to Abraham and his descendants this relationship with him that they don't deserve. They don't deserve it, but this relationship continues. And it's not given because Abraham or anybody that follows is good, but because God loves them. He just shows them the favor first. When I pray with my kids at night, I say, God, thank you for loving us first. And so that favor continues because Joseph sent away to be a slave by his brothers. And they tell Jacob, their father, that Joseph's dead. We don't know what happened to him. Actually, no, they frame it, right? So they think he's, so they, you know, they pretend that he's dead. And Joseph, all alone, is forgotten. He's refined for years, decades, by serving. He puts on a heart of service, and as it turns out, he starts learning how to manage and rule wherever he goes. First in Potiphar's house, then he gets thrown in jail. But then in the jail, he's the manager of the jail. And so finally, through the interpretation of dreams, he finds himself ruler of Egypt. And God makes it so that as he's supervising these grain distributions, it has to be by, by, by accident. They're giving grain out to thousands of people. God makes it so that as he's supervising the grain distributions, his own brothers show up for their own distribution. They've come all the way from Canaan. And Joseph, showing mercy, showing the love that only God could show, he reveals himself to his brothers, not to give revenge, but to invite them and his father Jacob and his brother Benjamin to be delivered from the famine so they wouldn't starve. For everyone to come to Egypt so that they wouldn't starve, 70 persons from the household of Abraham enter the land of Egypt. And so our first point to see in all this, even before we get to this passage, is that God is faithful and God provides. You see, God makes provision through evil done by others or ourselves. And God makes sense of actions and situations that previously did not make sense. I had a professor once, so I won't explain what context we're in philosophy. And he says he can change the future because the current moment, future events always shape what you think past events were, right? And so God can make sense of actions and situations that didn't make sense. And how many of us this morning you need to know that's something God can do. You're going through something, you're in a situation, and you just need to know, can God do that? And this book in Genesis tells us that God can. But note now, we go to Genesis 47, 1 through 6. We're going to get from here to the end of the book. 47, 1 through 6. And I'm reading from the ESV. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh... My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle, among, settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. And so what do we have here? We, we, this is really interesting. God is using a hostile land to provide for his people. 
Egypt is a place they've got the worship of false gods all around them. The people who live there, they do things, they live in ways that are not pleasing to God, but they live in the land and they even take care of Pharaoh's flocks. Now you gotta remember, who's Pharaoh? He's not just the president. He's not just a ruler. They looked on him as a god that was chosen to lead the people. So one might say, taking care of Pharaoh's flocks is like looking after another god's possessions, but they do it. God's using a hostile land to provide for his people, and what do they do? They, in turn, they bless the land. They seek its good. And as we'll see, even Jacob, he goes into Pharaoh's presence, another God, remember, and he comes and he blesses them and goes out. Look, that's a little weird. He went and blessed another God. It's like, you're like, what's happening? But I, I think this tension shows how we're supposed to live while we live in our city and in our town here. Whom Some might see, well, hey, this place is hostile to us. It's a place that doesn't believe in Jesus or believe he's the only way. We're, we're here to be salt and light and we're here to bless our neighbors. We want our neighbors to believe that it's good that we were here. I had a friend once I had a conversation with and his, he, he's basically talking down on some church that a lot of people really like. Not, not in this town. I don't tell you which one. But he said, how many of the people who live around the place they worship benefited in some way from the fact that they were there, right? And this is the vision of your church, our church, our network of churches. We want to be a blessing. When you have these events, you're like, what are we doing this for? It's because we want to be salt and light. We want to be a blessing. That's why we partner with local organizations. And you might say, aren't you partnering with an ungodly group of people or something like that? We say, no, we're here to bless. We're here to help our town and city flourish while also enjoying the best of it. There's so many things that we enjoy here because uh, it's just a, a great place. It's a great area of the country to be in. And so we're called to be a blessing, and that's our call, even as we are blessed by staying here. God's people get to stay in Goshen. It's like the nice part of town of, the, of a very nice, well-doing country. I don't know if you feel this, right? We are in a very blessed place. We've got all this money pouring in from all kinds of directions. Stuff is being developed, you know. I went for a road trip recently. That is not the case in every part of the country. You don't have to go that far. Money's not always pouring in, but we're called to be a blessing even while we benefit from being here. So now we zoom in on Jacob. And at the end of his life, he comes before Pharaoh, right? Verse seven, then Jacob brought in, Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And I just mentioned that. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? So, so Jacob looks, he's, he has to be helped. So they're asking, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Now you've got to remember Jacob to understand the significance. Jacob started out as a man stealing blessing, just getting it for himself. He steals it from his brother, he was a liar, and his name literally kind of means deceiver. But now he looks back. He's asked, how long have you lived? Like, look back on your life. And he just says, after all God has done, instead of bragging about how great he is or what he ought to have, he simply says, they've been few 
and evil. And this isn't a statement of self-deprecation. If you come from a culture like mine, where I grew up, if anyone gave you a compliment, you have to immediately push it off and say, no, 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 I'm awful. I'm a terrible person. That's not what he's doing. It's a statement of humility. My question is, what's the humble view of our lives? What is the accurate, I would say? Humility is really seeing yourself accurately. What's the humble view of our lives? What do the saints of God generally come to see the more sanctified they become? The closer God brings you to Him, the better you understand your sin. How do you see your life? We see that the days are few, that they're evil. Some of you guys are further along than others. I'm on the other side of 40 now, and it's like stuff is like starting to shift. The days are few. It's going by fast. The days are evil but also that God is gracious and good. And so we seek to be a blessing to others while we're here, all the while proclaiming who God is. So we're going to move on. What happens to Egypt during the famine? Joseph basically here, up 13 through 27, I'm just going to tell you what happens. He basically acquires the whole country on behalf of Pharaoh. So there's the famine in the land. They're all giving money to get like government grain basically, right? And then after they've run out of money, they're like, hi, we don't have any more money for government grain, but we, are, we still need to eat. And so Joseph says, well, why don't you just give me all of your stuff, all your livestock and your herds and, and you know, everything. And then they say, sure, sure, here you go. Here's all, all of our stuff belongs to you now. Please feed us. And then they eat and then they come back. There's still a famine. Uh, we still need more. And then Joseph says, they say, well, we have our land and we have ourselves. Um, We'll just belong to Pharaoh. We don't have a choice. And so the whole, all of Egypt comes to become part of Pharaoh's possession. And so Pharaoh has a fifth from then on. And that kind of sets up, if you're, if you're in Israel and you're being told this story of where your parents came from and how we got here, you're like, oh, that's, that set up the infrastructure for all these big building projects that we were forced to be a part of. Does that make sense? So just, they're telling some background of how Egypt came to be structured the way it was. And also, if you knew the Egyptians were paying a fifth, then suddenly when in the Old Testament later, God is like, you should bring a tenth. You're like, oh my gosh, our God is generous. It's the tenth, not a, not a whole fifth. And so, or two tenths, you need to do that math. Um, so Joseph acquires the entire country on behalf of Pharaoh. And after 17 years, Israel Jacob, you know, they use this name interchangeably, just so you remember. He approaches the end of his life. So, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. They're fruitful, multiplied greatly, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph to him and said, I'll call the son Joseph and said to him, if I've now found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you've said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And so Jacob reminds his son Joseph where the land of promise is, where they came from. And he makes Joseph swear to bury him 
in the promised land. Like he wants the promised land to be his final resting place. And then what does he do? He's going to give his final blessings now. Does he try to get one last thing? Does he grasp for what he wants finally in these last moments? You already know he's a changed man now. He doesn't do that. Genesis 47, 31, what we just read said, he bowed himself upon the head of his bed. But the language actually is more vague than that. It's hard to translate, but this is why we use scripture to translate scripture. Don't always believe, well, no, you shouldn't believe what's going on up here. But just know that we don't take what we say up here from the pulpit when the word of God is preached just based on what we think. In Hebrews eleven twenty one, it says, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So when it says that he bowed himself on the head of his bed, we know that the scripture says he's just worshiping. He's not grasping anymore. He's not fighting for what he wants. He just gives God glory and worship. He says, God, you're worthy. The days are evil, but God is worthy. So when we keep our eyes on God, when we, as a preacher I heard the other say, uh, day preaching this passage, when we grow through it while we go through it, we stop focusing on ourselves, start focusing on how to bless others. We see where we've come from. We want to be where we're going. We've come, to, we've come from few and evil days, and when we walk with Jesus, we're going to a place so overflowing that some of those blessings from the new world are here now. And we're just trying to share that with people. I had a, I had a conversation with someone the other day who's exploring faith, and, and I said, you know, it's like, it's like there's a door. You ever, you ever seen like a movie and then the, you open the door and then the, what's inside is much bigger than what it looks like on the outside, right? And I said, you know, what's going to happen is that what we're doing is that the door has been open and we can see, we can't see everything, but we know what is through the door is much bigger. It's much bigger than what's here. It's much bigger than what it appears. And more than that, we know someone's come through the door to tell us what it's like. Jesus has come through to tell us what it's like. And really, that's what, in some way, Jacob is doing. Don't forget where we come from, where we're going. We can, we can focus on where we're going when we keep our eyes on God as we're going through it. And so now, through a final blessing. Jacob's family and the 12 tribes of Israel are formally established. So we'll see this now in chapter 48. So Joseph's sons are brought in to be blessed by Jacob. And why? Because this, so a blessing, if you don't know what that is, I mean, you might know generally, but when you have the benediction each week on Sunday, when someone gets up here at the end, they bless you. That's not just like, let me say some things and you hear it to signify that we're done. Blessing is an actual act in which something is imparted, a grace that's given from the place of authority from who's, who you're receiving it from. There's a real thing that happens. It's why we try not to leave before, you know, things are done, right? Because we're actually, there's something happening. And so let's see the blessing of Jacob. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, that's verse 15. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil blessed the boys, and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
So this is Jake, Joseph's sons being officially added back, right? They're being added back into the family. They're being given the blessing of Abraham. And Jacob blesses them. Now he does this arm crossing thing, right? They come and, you know, he can't see, right? He's pretty blind now. But he crosses his arms to bless them, right? And the right arm would be traditionally for the first son and then the, the, the second lesser son, you get the secondary blessing. But he crosses his arms and Joseph, he gets, he gets annoyed, right? He's, he's like, why are you crossing your arms? This is the older one. This is the one who should receive the favor. And you gotta, you gotta remember, um, Joseph, he hasn't been living at home for a long time. And he's forgotten how things work in the family, right? So, and, and Jacob is crossing his arms to bless the younger over the older because this is the theme. This is the theme in Genesis you've seen for months and months and months. God looking after, blessing someone who's traditionally overlooked, who's normally not seen or invisible, right? And that's actually why your church's partnerships work the way they do. That's why we try to form and, and care for those that we do is that the, we know the Lord loves us, but we also know that his heart is for people who are given smaller pieces of the pie and that God cares for those who are often overlooked. And I can tell you that that is really the way God's kingdom works. That's the way partnerships work for our church as a whole, but also in our lives. That's who God is after often, just to show them they are not overlooked. Now look, Joseph's displeased because... He's forgotten how things work, right? And Jacob is reminding Joseph, remember though, Joseph, you, you were 11th. You're the 11th son out of 12th. But now you've been honored by God and this is how God works. Because remember, Joseph was underneath his brothers, even though his dad was honoring him. And now he's placed over his brothers. And look, this is why we get together here. This is why you do this, even though there's no AC in here and it gets hotter on some Sunday mornings. It's because you need the reminder of how our family works, how we find our worth, how we respond to suffering, how we treat our enemies, how we forgive. And we need to remember how God uses everything. That's why, that's why it's worth it just to show up to spend time with children. Maybe some of you volunteer with our kids' ministry, right? Showing up is sometimes just so important to be a part, to remember how things work in this family. Because you're out there all week. Other families are working, the, the other spiritual families are working the way they do. We need to remember how our family works. And so Joseph's sons become not grandsons, they become part of the tribes of Israel. And then there's this reminder about what parts of the land they should reclaim in chapters 48, 21, and 22. So now we get to chapter 49. And note uh, in, in how these blessings work in chapter 49. So I'll look at verse 3 and 4 and 49. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. I don't, I don't know if you get this. He starts out like, first fruits of my strength, preeminent dignity. 
Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. It's almost like, hey, you thought you were going to get this kind of blessing. Actually, I don't forget what you did that was so dishonorable. You went into my bed and you did something very inappropriate, which I will neglect to mention explicitly here for children involved in the room. And so Reuben the eldest is removed from the place of preeminent blessing for his sin. And then Simeon and Levi, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. So Simeon and Levi are called out for ringleading in violence and killing in anger. We do have that example, if you remember where the brothers went and they torched a whole village in revenge for something that happened to them. So maybe they're being called out for that. Judah, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Judah is given great honor, and we'll talk about that at the end here. But note that the brothers, I'm not going to read all the blessings, but if you go through it, they're all blessed. They're all going to be part of the blessing of Abraham, but they're also held accountable. We will stand together in judgment one day, believer and unbeliever, and there will be a reckoning and accounting for all we've done. And when we believe, and when we're dependent on Jesus, in a sense our standing is sure, right? We know that we're forgiven in Christ. We know that we will join him in his kingdom. But it doesn't mean that we will not have to answer for what we've done, for our decisions we've made not a believer this morning, if you don't know the Lord, are you ready for such a day? What will you say when everything in your heart is exposed on the last day? There's a book by C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces, and it's a fictional story, but he tells the story of a woman who goes through her life, and, and she has, a, she has a, a younger sister that she believes is just so much a better person and blessed and more beautiful and all these things, and she kind of goes through her life overshadowed. As she, she goes into her, all these things happen, it's a really long book, and at the end of her life, she's queen, but she's very bitter, and she feels that she's always been given the short end of the stick in life. And she has this moment where she has a vision at the end of her life. And she brings, she's like in a divine council, she's in a room, and she's told to make her defense, but actually she believes she has accusations. She's got a list of her problems with the, the, the cards she was dealt in life. She's got her complaints brought. She's got her airtight case against God, but all that she holds against him. And so then she suddenly, as she reads it, she is shown suddenly in a moment of pure objectivity what her sin cost those that she loved. All of a sudden, she, her list becomes, she's just, she realizes it's nonsense. 
what she thought was so clear, the case she had against God, it's just nonsense, it makes no sense, and she realizes it, and she stops. And then she's shown, actually, you thought this person had it all good. You had no idea what they were doing for you. And she's like, is that what they went through for me, to put up with me, to do that for me? Is that what these people who were close to me, that I thought I was giving to them, they were sacrificing for me? And she's shown objectively what was happening in her life. Her complaints are just foolishness now. And then finally she gets to see God face to face. And so I want to read this passage to you. And hopefully I won't cry, but that's what I did. I think I'll be all right. The voices spoke again. I hope that's on the screen, right? Yeah, all right. But not loud this time. They were awed and trembling. He's coming, they said. The God is coming into his house. The God comes to judge, Oruah. That's, that's the older sister. If Psyche had not held me by the hand, I should have sunk down. She brought me now to the very edge of the pool. The air was growing brighter and brighter about us as if something had set it on fire. Each breath I drew let, me new, let into me new terror, joy, overpowering sweetness. I was pierced through and through with the arrows of it. I was being unmade. I loved my sister as I once have thought it impossible to love, would have died any death for her, and yet it was not, not now, she that really counted. Or if she counted, and oh, she gloriously did, it was for another's sake. The earth and stars and sun, all that was or will be existed for his sake, and he was coming. The most dreadful, the most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is was coming. The pillars on the far side of the pool flushed with his approach. I cast down my eyes. My question, church, is will you be ready? Will you be ready for that day? Please be ready. Please be ready. You see Jacob here, he's ready. He's ready. And so in Genesis 50, Jacob dies. God fulfills what he promised to Jacob that day when he was told that Joseph was alive. He's told he was his son that he thought was dead was alive. And he believed. And God told him, Joseph will close your eyes. Not only am I going to do everything I promised, this son you thought was dead will close your eyes. Genesis 46, 2 through 4, if you remember. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Sometimes it's risky, friends, to trust God and walk in obedience, but we can trust God in his promises. So there's a funeral. The entire house goes back to Canaan. They bury Jacob. And then we have this moment in Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21, where now the brothers, after their father is dead, they're really worried that Joseph hasn't actually forgiven them. So they're afraid. They send a mediator. They send someone ahead. They go, oh, by the way, <laughs> uh, dad said um, that you should remember to forgive us for all the horrible things we did to you. And then after they send that messenger, they just come and they fall on their faces and they say, we belong, you are your servants. And this makes Joseph weep. He 
because they don't believe who he said he was now. They don't believe that what God has done in his heart. And so then Joseph now says what the entire book of Genesis has been trying to say to us. Do not fear, verse 19, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so you see, he sees clearly what God was up to. He has a moment of clarity to understand, as I said in the beginning, God is faithful and God provides. He makes provision through the evil done by others and he makes sense of actions and situations that make no sense. I want to close to think about Judah. If you remember, he's blessed. He's blessed, but he was the one who suggested they sell Joseph for profit. He was the one who went out to go have a good time after his wife passed and had a child by not good means. Why does Judah get blessing and honor? And what's the difference? Is that Judah was repentant. In the beginning, he's willing to sell his own brother. But in the end, he's insisting that if my brother can come back, I'll sacrifice myself. And so Judah is given rule and authority. Why? Because one day, someone from the tribe of Judah would come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, would come and sacrifice himself so we could live. Judah is honored to rule because then that previewed the fact that Jesus would come and more perfectly do it. Die for us despite for the fact that he was righteous. Live again. Bring us forgiveness of sin. Bring us life with God that we don't deserve. He did everything right and correct and did it without flaw. And he died for your sin and mine so that that forgiveness is now available. That now that door to the other world is open. We'll, be, we'll get to go through it by him. Now he wants us to know, he wants others to know that forgiveness that right relationship with him, that that world is available. And he wants people to be ready for the last day, living in light of the last day, building and preserving, blessing, forgiving, and being ready for the last day when all will be exposed and seen and known. And so he offers us this hope because while we're not going to be in a promised land, a physical land over there right now one day, Jesus has gone to prepare us a place and one day that place is going to come down here and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Saints, let's know that God is faithful, that God is up to something, that he wants us to be ready.